Gresham College presents How the Zebra Got Its Stripes by Professor Andrea Seller, University College, London. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. And actually, I, I suddenly remembered last night um, that something like 15 years ago, uh, an old friend of mine said to me, my God, you should be doing lectures at Gresham College. And I went, huh? You know, what's that? And, and ever since, I've sort of known about Gresham College and I've sort of seen the people who were speaking. And I've always kind of secretly hoped that someone might go, hey, you know, do you want to come down and give us a talk? And, and so today, in a way, my, my, my dream has come true. And it's also really nice that this is part of a, in a way, a three-part series about patterns. And what I'd like to address today is patterns from a chemist's perspective. Um, but in a few weeks' time, or soon, I can't remember when, um, Ian Stewart, who is a mathematician from Warwick, will be talking about the real maths behind it. Um, I'm going to put one equation up on the screen, which I think is very significant, and I think he'll actually sort of explain it to you properly, um, whereas I'm going to limit myself to uh, interpretive dance and, and things like that. Um, but it's also very nice to see um, some friends in the audience um, go way back. It's great, great that you're here. So <clears throat> I really want to ask the question, uh, something very mysterious. And you know, I talked about zebras. In fact, the reason it's, it's kind of called zebra is, of course, the, um, the, the Kipling story. And some of you may have heard or, or may, may have been listening to the programs called Just So Science that are going out this week at 1.45 on Radio 4. And they're presented by the wonderful Vivian Parry. And I was very fortunate to be invited to be part of it. So yesterday, there was How the Zebra Got His Stripes. Um, that went out as a kind of introduction to today's talk. The advantage today is that yesterday we just described the visuals, and that's always fun to do on radio because people's imaginations can go completely wild, um, whereas today I'm going to confine you to what you will actually see. Um, but I have here a beat that I picked up in Chapel Market in Islington on the weekend. And what I'd like to do is to slice it open, and I'd like you to um, take a look at this amazing thing. So let me just cut it quickly. And there are actually better examples of this. There are actually candy beets, which unfortunately this year's rains um, have completely ruined the crop, and so they're very hard to get. But I want you to take a look at the inside of this beet. So let me just switch back over to the camera. So I've sliced it open. And if you have a look, there's something remarkable about the inside. You see the fact that there are those structures. They're those concentric circles on the inside of the beet. And depending on the variety of beet that you have, um, I mean, this one is kind of yellow and orange, um, but the best ones are the ones where you've got a beet which has a really white sort of flesh. And then there are these beautiful pink stripes on the inside. And the question is, how does a beet contrive to make itself like this? And you know, the obvious initial gambit might be, well, you know, as the beet is growing and getting bigger, then you know, those structures appear. But that, that, that's not really answering the question. So what I would ask, let, let's go back to zebras, perhaps, and use zebras as, as, as our fundamental idea in, in patterns. And I would ask you, members of the audience, what you think. You know, where do those stripes come from? Any suggestions? So they're in the DNA. Now, why are they there? 
Anyone have any idea of why zebras might be striped? So, yeah, I mean, there's the, there's the camouflage argument that it might be, you know, that, that lions or something out in the plains of you know, the, the savanna, um, you know, that, this, that, that the lions get confused or something. And, and so there's a slight selective advantage because maybe the lion can't tell one, where one zebra begins and the other one ends, or maybe they disappear into the long grass and you can't see them. Um, in fact, there's a very interesting study that came out a couple of years ago, some beautiful experiments done by some, some Swedish researchers, I think, which showed that actually horseflies bite zebras or, or bite backgrounds less if they're of uniform color than if they're striped. And so actually it might not have to do with large predators, but actually have to do more with, with protection from insects. Um, so, you know, whatever the, 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 the theory is, there the, the seems to be some kind of uh, evolutionary advantage. And you've immediately traced it across to, to DNA, um, and we'll come to that in a second. But are there any other theories on the table that anyone wants to put forward? Air conditioning. Air conditioning, yeah. Um, air conditioning, it might be, um, you know, some people are smiling, but, you know, it, it might be the fact that the black part of the body is actually able to radiate, right, heat away from the zebra rather better than the white bit. And so if you had a completely white zebra, then it wouldn't be such a great radiator. It would lose heat less effectively, perhaps. Um, any other suggestions for why zebras have stripes or where the stripes on the zebra come from? Attraction to others is that, you know, one zebra uh, finds, you know, stripes attractive in another zebra. Um, I mean, that's, that, that, I mean, I suspect is, is a cultural thing. Um, <laughs> I don't know about you, but many of us, I think, like to pattern ourselves in interesting ways when we're going out of an evening and hoping to meet interesting people. And, um, any other suggestions? You're, you're very resistant to one of, the key, one of the key explanations that's out there for why zebras have stripes, Kipling aside. Well, the idea might be perhaps that someone paints the stripes on the side of each zebra. <laughs> Now, we don't know who that someone is, um, but for a lot of people, this is actually a very reasonable explanation, is that, you know, essentially there is a creator in the world who, who goes around and, and has a system, right, by which, um, you know, with a paint roller or something in the womb, which has thus far eluded all the best efforts of people with x-rays, echograms, and so on, um, but nevertheless, somewhere, um, those, those stripes appear. And, it's an idea which runs very deep in most people's minds, and, and maybe we should, we should explore that as well, is whether perhaps a creator in some way is, is involved in this process. Now, as a chemist, of course, you know, I, I kind of wonder, because I mean, it, it's, it's really interesting that, that we've gone very quickly, we've leapt from the, the whole organism in, in the savanna right down to DNA, and DNA is kind of interesting because you've made a chemical statement. I mean, that's deoxyribonucleic acid, that hideous mouthful. Um, but, you know, you're really talking about molecules and that it is somehow or other those molecules which are able to generate those patterns. Interesting question. You know, the, DNA is a very fashionable thing to talk about. You listen to all these people, right, who work for big companies here in the city, and they talk this complete rot about stuff being in their corporate DNA. Um, and, and there's all kinds of things that seem to be pretty solidly built into their 
DNA that a lot of people are asking questions about at the moment. But I would actually want to think about what does DNA actually do? I mean, if you read the DNA code, what does the DNA code actually tell us? You know, you go back to Crick and Watson, right, and, and, and you know that there's this double helix, and, and there are these, these, these little sort of bases which link up, and so we have these triads of them, and there's machinery inside the cell that reads that. Now, when it reads it and translates it, what does DNA translate into? Protein. Well, the RNA kind of reads it, and then that is translated into protein. And then you further out, there's going to be cell chemistry. But there's something really important here. You know, we have this idea that the DNA somehow makes you, I don't know, gay, good, bad, blonde, something. But the DNA actually only codes for protein. All it says is make me another molecule. Oh my God, do you realize what an extraordinary disjuncture there is between the molecular world down at the bottom and the whole organism world at the top? And when I say whole organism, you know, I'm only talking about bacteria, let alone something like a zebra. And, and the astonishing thing is how few genes, it turns out, how little DNA is actually involved in generating something as complex as a zebra, you know, or us or, or, or a giraffe. So how does that, how do you make that, that connection between the top and the bottom? And ultimately it's got to come down to chemistry. So, so let's just summarize quickly, let's recap for those of you. How many of you actually studied chemistry at some point in your lives? Hands up. Wow, I'm really impressed, that's great. Um, so there's loads of you who, who've studied at some point, but there are some people who, who, who are looking sort of very nervous, who are saying, no, I've never done chemistry, and it scares the hell out of me. Um, and yeah, so what is chemistry about? Well, chemistry is really, in many ways, about trying to understand the world of stuff and what chemists do. Of course, most of them usually wear lab coats, and I should have safety specs somewhere, but I can't find them. And um, in fact, I, that's just reminded me that the really dangerous thing um, that I brought along is, is missing, but we'll worry about that in a sec. I'll ask one of you for help in a moment. But chemists deal in sort of weird glassware, and they, 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 they have stuff, and, and and the, the fundamental thing that everyone remembers about chemistry are those little equations, right? Where you take something called A, right? And then you're going to react it. And this is where maybe chemists lack imagination. They react it with B. Um, we're, we're not far away from those mathematicians. The mathematicians have a tendency to go a lot further down to X and things like that. Um, <coughs> but you take A plus B, right? And when you do that, a miracle occurs, right? It's fantastic. Um, now, I know that there are those of you who study chemistry who are going, you know, you are the most patronizing person I've ever come across um, because all you've done is you've transformed the extremely powerful laxative phenolphthalein into, uh, you know, pink color. It's an indicator, and you've just changed the pH. And yeah, I have. But actually, I mean, there's quite a lot of quite interesting chemistry. But I think there's an important point about the way in which you need to think about chemical reactions, and that is the fact that you, you, you introduce characters, right? Is that A and B, you know, we spend a lot of our time doing things, something we call characterization, understanding the behavior, the properties, right? You know, the, the bond strengths, the, the boiling points, you know, the, the colors, the spectroscopy. And that process of characterization is very, very important because once we've done that, 
then we can start building up our stories. And so we have A plus B, then there's an arrow, and then there's you know, some kind of weird product at the end. Um, and, and the arrow is the thing that, that we never seem to spend a lot of time on when we're talking to the general public about it. Right? Everything is this plus that arrow, i.e. miracle product. And I want to focus on that arrow because, you know, literary critics don't go, ah, you know, here are the characters, the butler did it, right? You know, the plot development is actually the real meat and potatoes of this story. That's where the interesting chemistry really lies, is, is along the way. So what we need to do is to think a little bit more about the plot development. Now let me draw your attention to a couple of things in that reaction. And the first thing um, was really rather, rather striking, and that is you'll notice how boring it has become. I mean, it's a very fetching color, yes? And, you know, nice. You know, we could put it on the shelf and admire it. But that's kind of it. The story is over, right? There is no further progress possible. And so if we're going to think about this as chemists, then we need to kind of have, a, have, have an understanding of why it is that reactions start at the beginning and, and end at the end. And so the way chemists think about the, the, the world of chemical reactions is actually invariably in terms of some kind of landscape. We, we construct energy landscapes to try and understand why things with react, react with each other. And so, you know, we really imagine a world where you have uh, mountains and, and valleys and, and mountain passes and, and that sort of thing. And what a reaction consists of is really moving around on this very complex sort of multi-dimensional surface that, that constitutes the reaction pathway. And so going from A to B is really telling the story in a sense of that, that, that pathway, that journey from the starting materials to the products. Now, it's just snowed, yeah? It actually hasn't snowed very much, which is annoying. But if you think back to what happened last year um, when it really did snow properly, you know, what was the first thing you did uh, when it snowed? Do you have any small children? If you know any small children, or, but, you, know, you know, small children immediately go running out, right? And they, first they start heaving snowballs at each other. But then the next thing they do is they start thinking about landscape. And, you know, what I did was, you know, it was Saturday morning. I went running out with my children, right? And we went looking for the nearest hill with a couple of garbage bags. And, you know, there's no point owning a sled, yeah? So, um, I mean, it only snows once a year or something if you're lucky. Um, so... So what you do is you get some nice heavy rubble bags and you fill them with snow and then you, you, you sit down on the thing, you grab a small child, strap them on the front, right, and, and off you go down the hill. And then what happens? Well, yeah, you, you get to the bottom, right? And eventually your sled stops and the small child then says, Daddy, I'm bored, right? And, or can we do it again? And at that point, you've got to schlep back up the hill. There's a, there's a really important point here, and that is that chemical reactions, like small children and parents on, on, on rubble bags, um, go from the top of the hill down to the bottom. And what they do is they travel from a sort of high energy, high potential position to equilibrium. Equilibrium is one of the most important ideas in chemistry. It's one that we spend an awful lot of time on. 
But let me let you in on a secret for all of those of you who, who deal in equilibrium theories and economics and all the rest, is that actually equilibrium is the most boring place you can be. Because equilibrium to a chemist is chemical death. Right? I mean, you know, you've started at the top, you've gotten to the bottom of the valley, and you're stuffed. There's nothing else you can do. And so, you know, there you are. You're, 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 you're down at the bottom, and, and it's, it's essentially over. Um, is there anyone who has a match here? My matches haven't come with me. There must be a smoker. Come on, admit it. There isn't a, a smoker. Okay, all right. Um, I'd like to point out there's a second feature to this reaction. Did you notice how fast it was? I mean, the moment I mixed this stuff together, kaboom, it was pink, right? And not all chemical reactions are like that. I mean, take this thing here. I mean, this is wood. It's sitting in a 20% oxygen atmosphere. That sounds like an accident wait, waiting to happen. I mean, Gresham College, my god, the fire regs, right? Because we know that all this stuff is combustible. And the interesting thing is that that must tell us something about the landscape for wood and oxygen. We would expect them, really. The bottom of the hill must be carbon dioxide and water. We know that that's favored. Once you've got carbon dioxide and water, that's it. You know, that's the end of Gresham College. It's going to take an awful lot of effort and an awful lot of cutting down trees to, to reconstruct something like this. So, the next thing is, can we understand more about the landscape? And, and really, when we carry out chemical reactions, we're talking about collisions between atoms. And if those collisions happen very easily, then, for example, at room temperature, all you need is just the tiniest, nu tiniest nudge, the reaction happens. That tells us that really, that, that reaction is a little bit like standing on the edge of a cliff and teetering. And you know that you can end up down, down the bottom with just the tiniest little nudge. It's a, it's a landscape that looks like this. On the other hand, this stuff here is clearly in a different sort of landscape. The only way that we can get this thing to burn, right, is going to be to warm it up. So if I had my match, I would be able to set fire to this room. It'd be a lot of fun. It would probably be the most memorable Gresham lecture of all time. It'd be amazing. Um, but fortunately, someone has tried to protect me from myself. Um, and, and so that's okay. But the point is that if you warm molecules up, they move faster, they collide more quickly, and now you can get over that ledge. Oh, a lighter would be great. Um, okay, so what we do, if we just open this thing, guess what? Not much happens, right? You know, I can smell mm, the, the butane coming out. It, it smells gorgeous, actually. Um, when I was in school, a teacher said to me, if you sniff it, you'll you'll know what it is. And I've been sort of doing occasional recreational sniffing of interesting organic molecules ever since. And, and, and it's true. You, you can. But of course, if what we do is we provide a spark, right, then that gives you the source of ignition, right? And now the reaction is interesting because it's self-perpetuating. Now the temperature is hot enough that so long as the fuel comes in, right, it, it continues. And so that's really rather interesting, is that now we're, we're beginning to see that these landscapes are actually rather more complex than we imagined at first sight. Okay, um, enough fire for, for, for one lecture. Um, now, I don't know whether you've been watching 
this reaction. And it may be difficult on, with, with the background we've got. Let me just see if I can get a blacker background or something, a darker background. But I want you to look at these, these, these solutions. In fact, I might just hold it up. Um, those of you at the front will have, will have seen them. Can you see it's changing color? And if you watch it for a few moments longer, this thing's going to change color again. Um, it's going to gradually fade. It's very, very strange. And you might be tempted to say that this reaction is profoundly ambivalent about its, its own state. Right? It just doesn't know whether to be a starting material or a product. It's changing its mind, right? And yet, when you think about that, there is a real problem with that idea. Why would a reaction change its mind? When was the last time you were on a toboggan that changed its mind while it was going down the hill? A lot of you go skiing. Your skis don't suddenly decide that they're going to go back up to the top because they don't feel like it anymore. There must be more to this thing than meets the eye. And it's very interesting because this was discovered in the 1950s by uh, a Russian chemist, a guy called Boris Beluzov. He was an agricultural chemist who was very interested in uh, the chemistry of respiration. And he started doing chemical reactions, trying to understand the nature of the oxidation chemistry that happens inside cells. And he stumbled across this thing. And when he tried to publish the paper, he was basically dismissed as a nutter, right? The referees on the paper, and it's really important to remember that you know, papers that make it into the academic literature are vetted, in a sense, by referees who go and check, take a look. And they say, is this sound? Or you know, has this person done the experiments properly? Have they interpreted them properly? Does it make sense? Does it fit within current theories and so on? And this was a complete outlier. I mean, this was completely mad. Right? How could a reaction switch between different colored states? Um, Beluzov got very, very, very depressed. In fact, he got so depressed that he managed to sneak his paper into a conference proceedings. And conference proceedings, you've got to be a little careful of because they don't get scrutinized in quite the same way. But it's a way in which people can sometimes get the thin end of the wedge into a conference. Um, it's a little bit, I guess, like uh, Lord Moncton at the IPCC who managed to sneak his way in there. Um, a graduate student saw it and was really intrigued. Um, and even though everyone was saying, it sounds like you're going back up the hill, he wondered whether there might not be more to this. And in order to illustrate this, I'm going to add a little bit of an indicator in here. So I'm going to pop the indicator in. So this is just a die which is going to report to us on what's going on in the solution. So here we go, we're going to squirt it in, it's nice and red, and within seconds you can see it switching states and going blue. Okay, so we'll just, just kind of mix it up so that it's reasonably uniform. You can also see some bubbles in there, that's, that's part of the chemistry. Um, and maybe we'll have a chance to, to explain that later. But let's just kind of let it, let it spin for a moment. Actually, we might just put in a tiny bit more dye just to emphasize the color. And I hope you can see that it's kind of a bluish color, and it's now changing a little bit. There, the bubbles have kind of cleared. Um, my camera is really reporting horribly, unreliably, the colors in there. Um, OK, so mixed it. And 
There, you see it's, it's, it's now blue, it's gone green. Whoa. And then we'll mix it some more. And let's just keep the thing, and you can see that it's gone blue now. And if we keep on mixing it, something interesting might happen. It seems to be showing the same kind of ambivalence, right? Switching from colorless to yellow back to colorless. Now what it's going to do is it's going to switch between blue, green, and red back and forth. It took a long time to unravel these. And the answer is that this is not an ambivalent reaction. This is a much more interesting reaction than that. It's actually a reaction which tells us something about the mechanism, the path. It tells us about the arrow. It's a rare case where we can actually visualize the arrow process. You can see it's now gone blue, it's gone green, it's going to come back to red in a moment, okay? It's magic. There is, it is a really superior kind of magic. It is so bizarre, it is so astonishing. So we need to kind of get to grips with how this could be. So what I'd like to do, first of all, is to um, show you a model for um, chemical reactions. And I said to you, this is the path to equilibrium, so there's more to it than, than you anticipate. Here is the reaction we saw before. Ready? Starts at the top, goes to the bottom. Equilibrium. Over. Finished. Okay. Now, this belongs to my son, right? He loves it, and I have to beg for it to borrow it. Um, but my friend the duck is going to show us one of those oscillating reactions. Ready? Now, the wood's a bit warped, so it's slightly misbehaving. But you can see that he's got a built-in mechanism which ensures that he goes from the top of the slope to the bottom, but that the path of true ducks and chemistry does not run smooth. Right? There is something built into this chemical reaction which ensures that the thing acts like a pendulum. Right? And we all know that pendulums swing between two states. But ultimately, unless you wind the damn thing up every day or every week or whatever it is, eventually the thing will stop. And the same applies here, and the same applies to our duck. Right? Is that what we're doing is we're behaving like a skier. Most normal adult skiers, we're not talking about 16-year-old males, um, they don't throw themselves headlong down the slope. What they do is they come down the hill in beautiful carving turns, red, blue, red, blue. And what this means is that there must be a feedback. There must be a feedback loop somewhere in there which is able to control how these chemical reactions go. So in order to illustrate that, I think we should set up a second reaction. Um, I'm having problems with it, and it may fail on me. This is great for the audience. The audience always loves it when a chemist does some kind of demonstration and the reaction doesn't work. Um, and I once gave a talk in front of a very, very mixed audience, which ranged, ranged from five-year-olds through to a whole series of fellows of the Royal Society. You cannot get a more daunting audience because both of them both sets of communities 
leaving aside the ones in between, are the ones that ask the nastiest questions, right? Um, and two or three things didn't work over the course of this lecture, and at the end I was completely crushed. Um, and a, a well-known professor of chemistry, David Phillips, who I think I'm sure has spoken here in the past, um, came up to me and he said, you know, really nice lecture. And I said, oh, God, I can't believe that this stuff has failed. And, and he said, no, no, no. Really important always to have something fail in your lecture. And I went, what? What are you talking about? Isn't that unprofessional? No, no, no. Really important because that way they'll know it's not television. Right? <laughs> now, um, <clears throat> I will say, I will say that I, I do have some television in case this fails. Okay, so what I've got is, is an iodine-based system. And I've got here the most fashionable reagent of our time. Um, that's hydrogen peroxide. Um, hydrogen peroxide has manifold applications. This is, in fact, Al-Qaeda strength. Um, so we're just going to quickly dilute it. And we'll pour it in. And I'm hoping that over the next few seconds, we should see something. If we don't see anything, I might go over to uh, my video. And um, I will blame. We, th th there's a weird thing is that we get batches of hydrogen peroxide um, that vary. Their strength is the same, but I think there's some kind of stabilizing additive or something which, which messes things up. And this has patently not worked. Um, so what we will do is just leave it for a moment. And I'm just going to flip over to a video, which I have right here. Now, which one is this? Help. Um, this is the one. OK. So what this thing ought to be doing, OK, as they say on Blue Peter, right, is it should be once again going yellow and becoming, watch, colorless again. Um, does anyone remember what color iodine is when you put it into water? Pardon? Can, blue black, not in water or alcohol. Kind of yellowish brown, absolutely. Yeah, stuff they rub on your arm when they're about to jab you or something is yellowish. And, and so you can see here that we've got iodine, which is being formed, which is being taken away. Um, now, for audiences of school children, um, and I usually sort of then start, well, let's just leave that aside, but I, I, I try and get them to see if they really do believe that it's iodine and see what proportion of the audience believes that, that it's iodine. Um, what we really need to do is to put in an indicator. We've just put in some starch. And you can see something remarkable. It goes blue-black, the color that you remember. But that's only in the presence of starch. And I want you to look very carefully, OK? This is going to fade in a moment. This thing has been a total failure. I don't know what's wrong with it. Um, <clears throat> OK, it's going to fade. Now watch. Notice that the yellow color of the iodine appears. And then kaboom, it goes blue. And this is telling us something remarkable, is that this reaction has a lot more complexity than you think. The starch is not detecting the iodine directly. It only detects some other species that appears later. And so there's something quite remarkable here, is that a chemical reaction generates iodine, and the iodine concentration comes up, right? And then there's a second species which is produced, and that reacts with the iodine. That gives us the blue color. And there must be a reaction which takes away the iodine and then takes away the iodide. And then the whole cycle starts again. This reaction here is described as being exocharmic. Okay? It provokes spontaneous giggles in the audience when it works properly. Right? And, and it really is, you know, again, superior kind of magic, provided you get it to work. Um, we have to explain this. 
We have to see if we can come up with a scheme by which we can understand this kind of process. How could you have chemical reaction systems that would do that? And to do this, we're going to work by analogy. And what's interesting is that the mathematics underpinning this actually comes from biology. So what I'd like you to do is to think for a moment about the spring. I know it's hard to do on a day like today. Think to the spring, and we're going to go out to the green belt, to a lovely green field, which we're going to fence off. And at the far end, we're going to put carrots. And we're going to put two rabbits into this enclosure. You ready? So we're going to put a male rabbit in here. And we're going to put a female rabbit over here. What happens? Pardon? You know what I find really depressing about, about, about Gresham College? Is that even here in the heart of the city, it is clear that romance is dead. <laughs> you know, I see the scene very differently, right? You have Mr. Bunny and Miss Bunny. They're in the enclosure. And they do what comes naturally to bunnies, which is not what you guys are thinking. You know, bunnies do, you know? the sort of hop, hop, the hop business. So what they're going to do is they're going to do a kind of random hop around within the space. And at some point, Mr. Bunny and Miss Bunny are going to set eyes on each other. Eventually, one is going to ask the other, I don't know which one, um, for a date by the carrot patch. The date goes really well. And of course, eventually, we get more bunnies. So, Let's just cut to the chase. I'm going to plot a graph. Now, um, it's traditional use PowerPoint, forget it. Interpretive downs. Here's the up axis, right? The ordinate. Here's, sorry, yes, the ordinate. This is the abscissa, right? So this is the x axis. Along here, we're going to have time evolving. And along here, we're going to have the number of rabbits, which you can think of as being the concentration, right? And you can see the concentration is changing with time. We start. Not of the origin. This isn't, you know, kindergarten graph, right? We start with an intercept of two. I mean, think about it. If we only have one rabbit, I don't know what he gets up to, but let's just say he's lonely, okay? So you've got to have two rabbits there. There's a bit of an induction period, so it stays flat for a bit, and then it starts to rise, right? And the rabbit population rises and rises because the more rabbits you have, the more rabbits you get. In other words, rabbit plus rabbit, arrow, more rabbits. Now, Reactions go faster the more stuff you have there, in general. And so the interesting thing is that the very act of doing this reaction is not depleting the starting materials. It's generating more starting materials. This is a nightmare. This is what we call autocatalysis. It catalyzes itself because it generates its own starting materials. And we have a positive feedback loop, right? This is the concentration of rabbits is going up. We're going to end up with Australia very quickly. What are we going to do? You've got to deal with the rabbits. Make rabbit stew. <laughs> Make rabbit stew. Sorry to the vegetarians in the audience. Um, yeah, um, you often get people saying you shoot the rabbits, and that seems a bit. No, it's not really sporting, you know. 
Anyway, the RSPCA would probably have something to say that. Um, this one is finally taken off, okay? So now let, let me just show you that there is no sleight of hand. Can you see the iodine has appeared, and now it's going to disappear, okay? So I'll just hold it up, okay? And then the iodine will probably reappear. I think that's, it's coming back now. It's going kind of brownish. I'm going to put, there it is. It's, it's just come back. Sod's law, when you put something down, it immediately changes color. And we'll leave it for a moment, and it should fade. Okay, so let's put our indicator in there. And what I really want you to do is to watch, right, for when that blue color appears. So this is the starch. You can see the iodine is there, but the starch isn't doing anything, and then kaboom, right? It's fantastically sharp, right? And so this is, you know, again, brilliant. But it, it really tells you about the speeds at which things are happening. So let's just shake it up a little bit. There's a few bubbles in there. Um, but, but you'll see that it's going to fade all the way down. So the iodine, now the iodine's coming back. And then, here we go. Ready? Boom. Great. I love this stuff. And the, 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 the depressing thing is that you know, I've seen this hundreds of times. And every time, I just cannot believe the sharpness with which the blue color comes on. Um, so, so let's you know, ask ourselves about whether, rather than doing this rabbit stew thing, which, which yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite nice, natural, kind of free-range organic rabbits, whether we, can, we, we couldn't use something a little bit more natural, like two foxes, okay? Now, the great thing about foxes is that being natural, they're nice, sweet, they're cuddly, no harm is done in the make, well, apart from the rabbits, Right? Because we know, I mean, in spite of what the body shop tells us, right, that natural things can sometimes be really quite aggressive and have sharp teeth. Um, we put in two foxes. This is TF, the fox time, right? And the foxes go on a date, right? Of course, they eat rabbit, and that means that you're going to get more foxes. And as you get more foxes, of course, they're, they're growing and they're... The, the rabbit population now is tightly interconnected. Suddenly, we have two, almost, I mean, two, two processes going on which are linked together. And this was actually something which was suggested at the very beginning of the 20th century, about 50 years before these reactions were seen, in a biological context um, by, by two biologists, one called Lotka, one called Volterra, who were trying to model ecosystems. And what's interesting is that they had borrowed mathematics from the chemists who were interested in chemical reactions. They built up differential equations to study simple ecosystems. And then the chemists actually went back and they rediscovered these Lotka-Volterra um, equations um, to, to, uh, to, to kind of try and explain how these things work. And you, know, you can see here, it's just going to carry on. Eventually, this thing is going to stop. And it will end up probably blue in most cases. Okay, so we can kind of understand how, how these processes work, the idea of feedback loops, the fact that the, you need to have some kind of autocatalytic process which takes off, which really accelerates, and then you've got to have a second feedback me mechanism which brings them back. And so, so far, so good. That's, that's great for oscillation, so what the heck has this got to do with zebras? Um, now, what I'd like you to think about is that this is actually a very poor model for a zebra or a frog or any other biological system. Why is that? Well, the reason is you will have noticed that thing going around at the bottom stirring, right? Biological systems are not stirred. And 
you know, I don't know anything about biology, really. Um, but what I do know is that if you take a, a frog or a rabbit and you drop it into a blender and you press the button, you go, <laughs> right? The frog doesn't work, right? In other words, the, the structures that you get are sort of crucial on the one hand, but they also kind of emerge from the fact that you're not mixing your system. And so the question is, what happens if you don't mix your system? Now, I've got the timing slightly wrong, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up something that we described um, yesterday on radio, and which um, I will perhaps show you a video of first, and then you can take a look at it for, for real in a moment. So I just need to mix this stuff up a little bit. I need to get one mil in here and one mil in here. Okay, so here we go, that was one mil. Right, so we'll mix this up, and I hope you can see it, those two beakers are very nice and yellow. We need to let them, let them fade for a little bit. I'm just gonna turn the lights out, and I think what we'll do is go over and just watch it on video for a moment. So here is a Petri dish, which contains exactly the same reagents as we had in this red-blue one that we had before. And what we're gonna do is we're not going to stir it. Um, and let's just get this more into the center. And what I'll do is I will play the video. Now we're expecting this thing to go from red to blue, and then to flip back to red, and then to flip back to blue. And the question is, how does it do that? Watch. It's an accelerated time lapse, right? Done by a friend of mine, Susie Arnott. Um, Where on earth have these patterns come from? This is really, really bizarre. Because you can see that there are astonishing structures. First of all, there are these, these circles. And if you were to, 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 to let them go for a bit, you'll, eventually they'll become a sort of series of parallel stripes. You can see over here these weird sort of spiral things. And actually, if we go back a little bit. Let me see if we can find them. There's, there's certainly over here. See, see on the right, there's what look like spots. The whole system is able somehow to generate its own patterns. And this is something that we really need to try and understand. Why would a, um, an unmixed system do this? And to do this, we need to think about this guy. Um, I'm sure you've all been Turing to death in the past 12 months, right? But I'm just going to continue for a little bit longer. Um, is we all associate Alan Turing with computing, artificial intelligence, the idea of a programmable machine. You know, in our pockets, there are all these fantastic universal Turing machines, which will do everything from looking after our accounts to taking care of our photographs to allowing us to talk to our friends and so on. But Turing, very interestingly, in 1952, I mean, in fact, throughout his life, had always asked himself questions about the mathematics of nature. And as a, as a kid, he had, um, uh, as, a, as a teenager, he'd written a prize essay in school about a reaction which is very similar to this, which is called the clock reaction. And that's a reaction which doesn't flip back and forth, but which waits a set time and then suddenly, kaboom, goes blue and stays blue. And they're great because you can use them in the theater and you can get the timings down to literally 
plus or minus a couple of seconds. And so you can let the whole show run, and at the end of 50 minutes, boom, it'll go blue. And he'd asked himself about, you know, the spiral patterns in sunflowers and that sort of thing, and he really wondered, you know, where spots and stripes and so on came from. And he published this remarkable paper. And this was uh, called The Chemical Basis of Morphogenesis. And it's from when he was in Manchester, two years before he died. And in that paper, Turing made a really, really radical suggestion. And as we get here, what I'd like to do is I'm going to set up two of these little diffusion systems for us. Okay, so we'll just mix it up very carefully. And what we should do in a moment is we should see this thing oscillate. It should flip from red to blue. If all goes well, there it goes. That one certainly went. So it's doing the oscillating thing. This one here is being a little recalcitrant. Don't know what's wrong with that. Another failed reaction. God, it's depressing. Um, anyway, we'll keep an eye on, on that one. Let me just blank this out. Help. Now I want to join BT Open Zone. No, I really don't want to do that. Um, <coughs> I do apologize. Um, I want you to watch, watch this one here. And what I'd really like to do is to ask some questions about the spots that we see as soon as they appear. And if they don't appear, I might actually give them a bit of a, bit of a shove. You can also see that I'd be very careful to mix the whole thing up so that it's as uniform as I can possibly get it. Um, it's not really doing very much, and we're running slightly out of time, so I might just give it a little, little poke. Um, but it's, if you're going to cheat, then do it right in the open, because then no one will, will actually believe that you're cheating, right? It's remarkable, and there are plenty of examples in the newspaper at the moment of things like that. Okay, so let's just give it a little, little poke. This is just going to be to, to set off this process in, say, three places. And I'm hoping that over the next few seconds, we should start to see some blue action. Maybe not. Um, OK, I'm, I'm really having a bit bad day today. Um, uh, lucky 13 or something. Um, <clears throat> a watched chemical reaction never runs. Let me just move this on. Ah, you can start to see. There's, there's a blue dot, which has appeared up there, okay? There's a blue one over here. And I want you to watch the way in which uh, you know what the pattern's basically going to look like, right? You get the centers of activity. Notice the blue wave, which is traveling out. But notice how the center is flipped back to red. And if you keep your BDI right in the center of the red splotch surrounded by blue, it'll go blue in the middle. Right? It, it, it should flip back in a moment. Here's another blue one. In fact, it's, it's a little bright in here to be able to see this easily. Um, there's another blue spot which has appeared. This here, the center has gone blue again. And the interesting question is, what determines the speed of those waves? And what are we actually seeing? Because the interesting thing is, that asking questions about the speed is all a statement about the shape of the landscapes. Now, I've just put a little water in there. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to add just a drop of soap. OK, and that's going to smooth everything out. There we go. Great, excellent. So we've got a little bit of detergent in there. And what I'd like to do is to ask a question. You might be thinking 
that what we're seeing here is diffusion. The random motion of the molecules through the solution. And so what I'll do is I will put a drop of the same indicator very carefully into the dish. Okay, so there it is. It's in place. I'd like you to watch and compare, if you can, that the, the, the boundary edge there with the boundary edge there. Which is moving faster? Okay, who's for the left side? Who's for the right side? Who's for the left side? Who's for the right side? Ooh, interesting. Okay, as, we, as, as time goes by, right, you see that more people are starting to think that it's this one than that one. Do you realize the enormity of what you've just said? What? How could the pattern move faster than the underlying molecules? Shocking. How could it be? But that's what we're seeing. That is the observation. You know, this is the truth, not you know, whatever theory we have. It's clear that that's what's going on. And this is where Alan Turing really had his great insight, is that what he posited was this equation that we cannot see on the screen. I'm just going to turn this off so that we can see the screen. Um, but he proposed this equation here, which is called the reaction-diffusion equation. And what he said was that if you didn't stir things and you left chemical reactions, right, which had some of these feedback mechanisms in them, in a medium, and at the same time you included that diffusion component, in other words, they had different concentrations in different places, and therefore they would drift across, that patterns would result. And his reaction diffusion equation really was one of the key papers that kind of lays the foundations of our understanding of how these systems actually work. Is that simply by setting up a chemical system which has these little feedback loops allowing diffusion to play a role, and simply by changing the rate of diffusion or some of the rates of the chemical reactions, you can switch this thing from having only stripes to having only spots to having weird cow-like patterns. And Turing, of course, was doing this with pen and paper. What he started doing was to program this into the Manchester computer that he'd built. And he started sneaking little chunks of time so that he and his graduate student could try and make little calculations. And in his notebooks, there are sketches, right, where there are cow-like patterns and that sort of thing. And today, of course, we take this for granted. Any old sort of PC, desktop, Mac thing will, will, will do this kind of stuff for you. And what he, what he started to say was it might be possible to treat a few particular cases in detail with the aid of a digital computer. And this method has the advantage that it is not so necessary to make simplifying assumptions as when doing a theoretical type of analysis. It's a really important statement. 
And one of the things that it does is it lays the groundwork for, groundwork for modern computational science. And one of the really striking things in chemistry, in biology, you know, in neuroscience, in all kinds of places, is the rise of the computational guys. These aren't, strictly speaking, theoreticians in that they don't simply, you know, scribble on the back of an envelope little equations like this, but they actually start plugging in numbers and start doing calculations. And what's more is here he says, the morphogen theory of phyllotaxis, and this was to do with, with how plants behave, uh, to be described, as already mentioned in a later paper, will be covered by this computational method. This was a statement of intent, right? This was him you know, raising the flag saying, this is where my science is going. Two years later, he was dead. His paper was barely noticed. Nobody read it. This is the number of times the paper has been cited subsequently in each year. And you can see that nothing happened through the 50s, 60s, and 70s because he published it in a kind of interdisciplinary Royal Society journal. The chemists weren't reading that sort of stuff. The biologists couldn't make sense of the maths. It was just kind of, and then slowly, slowly it began to build. And, and it really, really took off. And here are some pictures from a paper by a man called Kondo in Japan, um, where he has done uh, computational simulations of the side of a fish using Turing's method, right? And there is the fish as a time lapse. And you can see in which the way in which the patterns on the fish, you know, we kind of imagine they're fish, right? It's basically being die stamped like a little toy car or something, like the ones that our children play with. Uh-uh. These are really neat things. They change with time. And, you know, if you actually own fish and you go away on holiday, then you stop being able to recognize them in a way because, you know, Freddy has turned into Tony or something. And <clears throat> but there's something really important is that, you know, this, this Turing mechanism is great because what it allows you to do is to generate a unique pattern each time, but which looks broadly similar. And so you will be able to recognize that, you know, it's a cow, you know, or that it's a leopard, or it's a cheetah, or an ocelot, or a jaguar, simply on the basis of the pattern of spots. And Turing really, I think, started off an enormous wave of scientific activity. Um, in, a, in an area that you, know, you tend not to really hear about and, and associate with them. I think there's one final point. You know, how, how does this actually work in practice? Well, the theory is that when, when the, 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 the fertilized egg starts to divide, 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 what you get are these molecules called morphogens. And the morphogens are chemical signaling molecules which essentially get you know, diffuse across the surface. And as they interact, they react with each other. And what they do is they generate these patterns and they, they sort of do the programming, which switches on zebra black, zebra white, or whatever, you know, stripe yes, stripe no. Um, and, and, and so that's really the, 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 the idea underpinning things. But was Turing right? And the, the interesting question is, the, the, the fact is that the jury is still out. There's a really big problem, and that is that we can't find the morphogens. Is that there are very, very few systems where it is clearly authenticated that you can find the signaling molecules which are responsible for transmitting and generating these signals. And so biology is in this peculiar place where they can kind of simulate 
some of the patterns very nicely, but they aren't always sure what the underpinning mechanism is. The mathematics seems to fit, but, and if you listen to yesterday's um, How the Zebra Got His, got his Stripes in the Just So Science on Radio 4, um, my colleague Buzz Baum talks about um, his own theory, which is that actually cells are in constant communication by putting projections out. And that that communication back and forth, that's what generates these feedback loops, is that this communication between cells is, is responsible for it. And so maybe Turing wasn't right, but what he really did was he put an incredible, testable hypothesis on the table, which clearly spawned enormous amounts of activity. And, you know, over the next few decades, I think, we will start to see, right, where the truth really lies. Um, but I think we need to go back to the very beginning and just to say, you know, what about that painter theory? Is that there is some painter who puts the stripes on the sides of fish? Is that tenable? Well, I think the idea that there is, that each one is painted individual is untenable because we have no evidence to show the painter. But on the other hand, it is quite clear that pattern is much more deeply embedded into the fabric of our universe than we ever really appreciated. That you have these incredible deep bootstrapping things. And so when I present this to large audiences and there are people who from the back start shouting, you know, it's God, it's the creator, whatever, and, and then my answer is, well, I have no idea. That's an untestable statement. I don't know. I can't know. But all I will say is that if you believe in some kind of entity who you know, sits there with a beard and benevolently starts saying zebra with stripes and whatever, then you've actually got a very simple-minded view of how this creation works. And the way in which you can really understand how our world works is through the scientific methods of you know, hypothesis, experiment, and being highly, highly critical. And, you know, I hope that these kinds of methods are actually going to start impacting more into government policy and that sort of thing. Because I think there are fundamental truths that we can get through this very, very well tested and experienced method. Thank you very much. For all information, please visit www.gresham.ac.uk.